0: A reading from the Book of Isaiah, Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the chief of the mountains, and all shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord." Another reading from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 9-2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah 9-6-7, for us a child is born, to us a son is given. A reading from the Songs of Ascent of David, Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls, and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. A reading from the Gospel according to Luke. Luke 1, 26 through 45. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. <clears throat> in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. A reading from Paul's epistle to the Romans, Romans 13, through 14. And do this because we know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is near to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its lusts. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So today we're going to emphasis number three. We did, uh, I think we did loving God in just one week. Unfortunately, uh, uh, we took about six weeks in the grace upon grace. But in the grace upon grace, we ended with delivery systems of God's grace, and keep in mind that we said they are inextricably intertwined, so we can think about the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the church. We can think talk about them separately, but we can never relate to them separately. The scriptures are always coming to us through the church. In fact, indeed, they were written They've been preserved and translated by God's church. The scriptures can never be understood apart from the active power of the Holy Spirit. And despite today's radical individualism, uh, and despite the, the great teaching on John Wycliffe we had a few weeks ago, there really is a place for church councils and for holy men the Bible says, no prophecy of Scripture in uh, Peter's epistles is a matter of private interpretation for no one ever spoke by an act of human initiative, but holy men moved by the Spirit of God spoke as the Spirit led them. And there's really a place for holy men in, in concert, led by the Spirit of God to give us things like the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian symbol of Ath- uh, symbol of Chalcedon or the Athanasian Creed or whatever. Um, there's you know the Augsburg Confession, the first great creed of the uh, of the Protestant Reformation, very important stuff, and uh, very important uh, because uh, all creeds are is godly guys who know God a lot deeper than I do, who uh, know Scripture a lot more thoroughly than I ever will, who love God with purer hearts than I ever will, getting together in trying to tell us what are the absolute essentials that we cannot reduce the faith from. So uh, that is a good segue into into emphasis number three, which is the church. And so today, I don't know how long I'm going to spend on the church. And when we did this series at Wright State, we had nine two-and-a-half-hour messages on the church. And uh, then we had followed by 10 to two and a half hour messages on church leadership. And they are kind of, those two subjects are inextricably intertwined. And John Gray really uh, gave us some very good things about spiritual authority and the importance thereof today. So um, today I just want to look at the idea of word pictures of the church. Now, let me say this from the beginning. Um, this is a little touchy of an area because some people think that uh, if scripture talks about something more, that it's of necessity of a more important subject or there's also a, a bad, uh, a bad theo- hermeneutical principle called the law of first mention where people say, well, wherever God first talks about it first that, you know, that's you know, controls the doctrine on it and so forth. And Uh, It is a general rule that if something's important, it's not going to be spoken of in only one or two places. But there are exceptions to that. Uh, And it uh, is a somewhat important rule, not that that if something's important, it's going to be talked about a lot, but especially uh, that it will have a lot of word pictures, and so when you're dealing with word pictures of a particular per person of the Trinity or particular subject in Scripture, you've got to sort of ask the Scripture, why do we have these word pictures? So, for instance, um, I can only think of myself, although there, I might be just deficient, around a dozen word pictures of the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, does that mean that the Holy Spirit is less important than Jesus? Um, When I first, uh, first time I did the Search the Scripture series, I did three weeks on word pictures of Jesus at a church we used to attend, and I used to teach at every Sunday in a Sunday school class called uh, Bethel Christian Assembly, which is right over by where we live. And the first time I ever, uh, that, I, that was the first time I did the Search the Scripture series was for that Sunday school class. And uh, when I thought of the, the chapter on word pictures of Jesus, it took me about one hour to come up with around 55 word pictures of Jesus. Uh, then it got a little harder, and to get over 70, it, I had, it took me almost another hour but it's easy to get the 70 word pictures of Jesus in not very much time is the point so why is is the holy spirit less important than jesus because the scriptures doesn't give us as many word pictures and the answer is absolutely not the reason for it is that the holy spirit is the author of scripture and he came to glorify the father and the son And therefore, he doesn't speak of himself uh, in ways that draws attention to himself. And so to properly evaluate the the person and ministry and power of the Holy Spirit and its importance, you have to know that. One of the reasons the Holy Spirit is the forgotten member of the Trinity is, of course, our natural-minded culture of unbelief since the Enlightenment that that grows ever more natural-minded and anti-supernatural in, in Western culture all the time. But another very important reason is because the Holy Spirit spends the, His energies in Scripture glorifying the Father and the Son and writing of them. And so in one of the clearest word pictures of the Holy Spirit... Uh, that's in Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Genesis, chapter 24, is it? Um, you know, Abraham in that chapter is a type or a foreshadowing of the Father. Isaac is a type or foreshadowing of the Son. The camels and their gifts are a type and foreshadowing of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Rebecca is a type and foreshadowing of the Bride of Christ. And sending the servant to a faraway land is, is the idea that uh, God is taking his bride from the world to the kingdom of heaven. But the fact that she had to be uh, from the same lineage as Abraham and so forth means we have to become of the family of God to become part of the bride of Christ. That Isaiah, Genesis 24 is the whole Bible in one chapter in a a word-picture form. But interestingly, the Holy Spirit in this story depicts himself as Abraham's servant. Neither his genealogy or his name is given. Because the Holy Spirit is humble. But that doesn't make him less important because uh, no bride for Christ would have came from a faraway land to the Father had it not been the work of the servant, who is the type of the Holy Spirit in the the story. So, with that in mind, I do want to suggest that because there are so many word pictures of Christ, though, it is a hint that glorifying Christ is a major theme of Scripture and of all eternity. We will be worshiping Jesus and glorifying Him forever and ever and ever and ever. And when we've been there 10,000 days, bright shining as the sun, with no less days to sing his praise, we all have just begun or whatever. It's actually not even that good of theology because we'll be way, it's beyond all that. It's outside and above the time. For timeless eternity, which we can't even totally conceive, we can touch it a little bit when we're in deep worship uh, Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in man's heart. In, 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 when you're in the Spirit of God, you can touch eternity, you can understand eternity to some degree. Uh, but it's a realm outside and above time. The reason God knows the end from the beginning is because he lives outside the, the time. He created that beginning and the end. And it's all present now to him. So, with that, I just want to say as we get into this today, I hope to only do one week on this part of it, uh, I want to introduce us to word pictures of the church, but I want to tell us there are so many, I don't know how however, and however many, I think P is around 16 or so, or 17, something like that, I didn't count. Uh, one of the teachings that we gave at Wright State in this series, which was the third one was just on 12-word pictures of the church from the book of Ephesians. So if you want to give yourself a little homework assignment, here's your homework assignment. In fact, I'm probably going to quiz some of you on it when we're just hanging out. Uh, Find the word pictures of the church in the book of Ephesians. So, Here's a little little clue. It uh, is well said that uh, Ephesians is about the church of Jesus Christ while Colossians is about the Christ of the church. So that's a little cool ditty. Colossians is about the Christ of the church, while Ephesians is about the church of Christ. And you should be able to find seven or ten word pictures of Jesus in Ephesians pretty easily. All right. So with that in mind, we all know... uh, the, the Bible speaks in word pictures. And we're going to start with Matthew 16, 18. Remember after Jesus in verse 13. First of all, he takes the disciples. Don't have time for all this, but he takes them to a place called the gates of Hades. It's the only time in Jesus' ministry to the disciples that he took them outside of Israel. And he takes them to the foot of the mountain where uh, Herod's palace is in uh, in what would today be called Lebanon. And he takes them to a pagan place of worship called the Gates of Hades, where they had sex with uh, goats and worshiped the fawn, half goat, half man, uh, demonic thing. And... um, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say Moses, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? That's always the key. Whenever I'm uh, uh, challenging someone from another religion to have a Bible study, I start with, let's have a Bible study based on Matthew 16. Who do you say Jesus is? Let's examine who Jesus claimed to be. Uh, if, if you've never read John Stott's Basic Christianity, that's a pretty good book to start that. Uh, Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter is a pretty good book to start that subject, and so forth. And when, after uh, Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Peter, because flesh and blood didn't uh, reveal this to you, but my Father said, then he says, I will build my church. So that's the first word picture of the church is the word we translate church. But the Greek word is ecclesia. And it only appears a handful of times in the New Testament, twice in the Gospels. In both times, Jesus uses it in Matthew. However, it appears in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament lots and lots and lots of times because it's the word that was used for Moses' congregation or for the assembly as it's usually translated in English. And Jesus is being very intentional here, and he's saying Moses built a church. He built a called-out people who were called out of the world into God's family, into God's ways, into God's law, into God's covenant, into God's kingdom. They were, they were brought into a covenant relationship with God the Father by the Holy Spirit and by the law of God, by the Word of God. And I'm going to build a different kind of congregation. He's, he's juxtaposing them quite intentionally. And the, the main... The main issue is that God over and over and over again, has been very angry at, at Moses' his congregation. John Gray mentioned the Assyrians uh, in, in the first wave of the, of the diasporas of the conquering of Israel. The northern kingdom was conquered in 722 A.D. by the Assyrians. Isaiah 10, verse 5 says, Woe to Assyria! The, rat, the rod of my anger. In other words, I raised up Assyria to, 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 to judge my people, to kill them, to, to, to judge them hardly, hard. But they didn't so intend. And so I'm going to judge the Assyrians quite harshly, which he did with the Babylonians and the Medes. I've always loved that scripture, Isaiah 10, 5. So uh, then there's all these diasporas, the Babylonian captivity of Judah in 586 B.C., the, uh, the captivity of Israel and Judah by Alexander the Great, or approximately 333 A.D., the captivity by the Romans, approximately 160-something, 170 A.D., and uh, so forth, and eventually the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., which Jesus prophesies the coming of the destruction of Jerusalem throughout Matthew 23, 24, and 25. And what's called the Mount Olivet Discourse. And what Jesus is saying is this. There's a number of things God was mad at Israel about, but the chief of which was this. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to go to the hurting, lost, sinful, rebellious, pagan nations who were destroying themselves in their idolatries and wickedness and set them free with God's ways to introduce them to the Father and to His superior law and His superior way of life. And Israel kept falling into prejudice against the outer nations To the point where in the time of Jesus, they were selling doves and and all sorts of merchandise in a a place in the temple called the Court of the Gentiles. And, you know, modern people, because they're half socialist or whatever, think that Jesus was mad because they were selling in the temple. He was not. He was mad because they were selling in the Court of the Gentiles. And they were cutting off the kingdom of God from those who would enter in. And woe is you because you strain out a nest and swallow a camel and you hinder all those who would enter in. You don't enter in yourself, nor will you let anyone else enter in. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to build a kind of people who actually go right into the pagans and mingle with them and bring them out of their paganhood into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. I'm going to build a liberating army. Not a group of people who hate the world, but who hate worldliness and love the world by pulling them out of the worldliness. I'm going to build an evangelistic people. And frankly, nothing will get God more upset than a people who has no outward discipleship thrust. And that's what he means when he says, I will build my church. I'm going to build a very different calling, a called out assembly. You're going to be called out of the world, you're going to be made sons and daughters of God. You're going to enter into covenant. You're going to become more Christ-like by, and more of the fruits of the Spirit by the power of the Spirit all the time. And you're going to liberate captives and bring them on the journey with you. And if the blind lead the blind, they'll both fall in a pit. As far as you are willing to go, that's why this, this discipleship thing and spiritual authority that John was talking about, because spiritual authority makes the rubber hit the road. It gets the unreality and the deception out of our walks with God, and it causes us to really have reality. And the more reality we have, the more fruit we'll have. In fact, you can measure one by the other. If you're not that fruitful, part of what you should be focusing on is growing in Christ and becoming more Christ-like. And maybe you're missing some points. Maybe you should go to some people who are fruitful and say, hey, I'm not as fruitful. What, what, are, what are some of the obstacles that stand between me and fruitfulness? Of course, I think fruitfulness is always a thing done in a team and a family. As far as I've always understood, it takes a husband and a wife and a, to, to have kids. I, I may not be that bright, but I'm pretty sure that's how it works. It takes a family to have a family. So in Exodus 19, 1 through 6, uh, he tells them there'll be his special treasure in a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's repeated in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, and, and, and verse 9, word for word. People for God's own possession is, is a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Now, so one metaphor of the church is, of course, living stones—a a treasured piece, a, a treasured or special, you know, God, treasure or something you value. God values His church. God's church has a priesthood; it's a regal priesthood, and He and He calls people out of darkness into, into light through His church. There is no. You know, you can't love God whom you have not seen if you don't love the people of God whom you have seen. There's no salvation outside the church. Jesus lives in his church. You'll know Jesus through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the Jesus that's in Leah Gray and Sam Chen Sing Poon. That's how you're going to know Jesus. Let's go on to the next one. Salt of the earth. Uh, there's a lot of scriptures listed there because there's a lot of scriptures that talk about salt. Salt, they didn't have... when Before refrigeration, salt was used to stop corruption. You can tell if the Christianity of a culture is real or not by whether the culture's getting more pagan or non-godly or not. If a culture is in a moral fall then it's because the Christianity and the culture lacks, lacks reality or substance. Because the salt has become tasteless. And it's therefore being trampled underfoot. And so the world's winning the divorce rate issues. The world's winning the abortion issues. The, the world's win, winning uh, the sexual immorality issues. And the world's winning our, our children you know, I almost know no Christian families that haven't lost at least one kid, uh, of especially families that have four or more. You may hate the Amish and the Mennonites for how retreatist they are or whatever, but they uh, do tend to lead most of their kids to, to Christ and in the faith. However, I don't necessarily endorse all of that culture, but I do endorse that uh, we need to constantly be talking about doing a better job of discipling our own kids because we're losing way too many of them. The best of Christian families and the best of Christian schools that I've known, the Christian schools that I think are the most amazing Christian schools uh, lots of times the kids aren't in the most amazing place of Christ. So salt is a very important thing. Salt was so in, important that it's the root word of the word salary. And there, were t- there were times when the Roman troops were paid in salt. That's how valuable salt was considered at one time. It's the same root as salary. Lampstand. A lampstand is a place where you put multiple candles. And, of course, we can have laser beams and all sorts of ways of of intensifying light today. But uh, the best way to intensify the light was to put a bunch of candles on one lampstand together. Revelation 1.20 says, And the seven lampstands are the seven churches... Because lampstands, Matthew 5, you don't hide your light under a bush, and lampstands represent Christian community. They represent local churches. And they represent the fact that we're not very good evangelistically by ourselves. I don't know about you, but I have been involved with bringing about 1,000 people to Christ, I think, over the years. And it's always been uh, 30 or 40 people involved in the effort. And that's one of the primary metaphors or word pictures of what the church is supposed to be. A church that's not very focused on, on, on bringing the people out of darkness into light is not quite really the church. A city and set on a hill can't be sit- hidden. You know, I don't know about you, but when I'm in a really, really, really dark place, especially if I don't know the place, uh, I usually try to get some light going, even if I have to light a match or a candle or whatever. But, uh, you know, in my own house, I actually have a thing I like to do where I don't turn on any lights because I, I like to, you know... Prepare for the day that I may not be able to see, but um, <laughs> but that's just my own nutty thing. But I don't do that like at your house because I'll probably trip over the stool. Next metaphor, because uh, I'm, I'm just touching on the surface of the city. Uh, Matthew 5, by the way, is um, Sandy McNamara would be would be grading Jesus' paper and selling him. He gets uh, like a C- because he's he's mixing metaphors all over the place. (laughs) You're not supposed to do that in good writing, but both Jesus and Paul do it quite a bit. (laughs) Uh, The Bible is full of mixed metaphors. So he's calling the church salt, a lampstand, a city set on a hill, all in the same passage. which I guess is supposed to be bad writing. But um, I love Hebrews twelve twenty two and 25. By the way, First Peter 2, 9 above and Hebrews 12 uh, are the only scriptures you need for the controversy. You know, many dispensationalists, many fundamentalists say that the things that, per- that pertain to Israel in the Old Testament don't pertain to the church in the New Testament, and that, that doctrine of dispensationalism has caused the church to retreat into a kind of neo-gnostic pietism that's very, uh, makes the church worthless, basically, and makes people religious and confused and causes us to lose our children and a lot of other implications of that doctrine. But this clearly says that they're the same. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn. All the stuff that it says about the city of God, about Israel, about the people of God, are, all of that is clearly what the church became. God took the kingdom, Matthew 22, from Israel and gave it to a nation producing the fruit of it. which is, And he's doing that all the time, by the way. If you don't know this, the very liberalist churches that have embraced the higher criticism and ordaining homosexual bishops and all that stuff, all of them are shrinking to the point where they're disappearing at times. And that will always be the case because Jesus is always taking the kingdom away from nations that don't produce the fruit thereof. If we don't produce the fruit of what God's called us to do in this vision that we've been given as a church, he'll take it away from us. Remember, in Revelation, he tells the Ephesians that if they don't return to their first love, he's going to take their lampstand away. And the Ephesian church was gone by 650 A.D., one of the first of the Pauline churches to disappear. And there's just a waste town there like a Hollywood ghost town that you'd see in an old western. A city is a place where there's uh, culture, ways of life, neighbors, uh, all kinds of things happen in a city. And the church is supposed to be a city in the city. And what we're supposed to say is, I know your guys' marriages aren't working too well, so come see ours. I know your uh, handling of your finances isn't working too well, so let, we'll disciple you in how to do your finances. I know your emotional health isn't very mature, so we'll teach you how to, to, make, to learn to live with your emotions submitted to Christ so that your emotions will be uh, no longer masters because emotions make lousy masters. And they're wonderful servants. But you've got to keep them in subordination. The next uh, metaphor is a nation. Of course, that's in the scriptures we already read. 9, Exodus 19, 1 through 6, 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9. Genesis 18, Genesis 22. Romans ten nineteen, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And so forth. Number five, a people for God's own possession. That is a special treasure. You know, one of the things that I I work a lot with, with the people, especially newer people in Christ, so many people struggle with thinking God is mad at you. You know what? If it wasn't for the cross of Jesus Christ, God probably would be mad at you. But he put all the wrath of God on his Son. And you can, and if you, so you trade your life for his. And you know what? Just like when a father raises a little kid, uh, I I love seeing all these parents how proud they are of their little kids. And you know, they're proud at every stage. Like he can crawl by himself today. You know, and I try to be excited too. You know, like. He's walking. He's walking. He only fell down three times. You know, they're, And they're not going like, I've never seen a parent go, I knew if you tried to walk, you'd blow it. <laughs> but that's what we think God's doing to us. But he's not. Now, there is a chastisement of God and a wrath of God. Sometimes God chastises you, as John Gray pointed out in his Uh, Probably not so popular sermon, (laughs) because there's a lot of truth in it that people don't like. But uh, the truth is, God does chastise every son and daughter he receives. But weeping may endure for a night, and a shout of joy comes in the morning. You're, You're not angry at your kid because he stole a candy bar three weeks ago. By now you've gone out and rebought the candy bar if it was for you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But uh, uh, right, God's special treasure. I, you know, I always tell people that one of the one of the fruits of the baptism in the Spirit should be that you can increasingly hear God say, "This is my beloved son or daughter, in whom I am well pleased." You should be able to, like, God wants to speak that to you. God wants you to be close to him, intimate him, with him. Walk. The reason he wants you to walk right is because he treasures you. You know, one of the hardest times I ever went to work, I always tell this story, it was, you know, when my, one of my daughters was three, and as I was trying to leave for work, she was like, Daddy, don't go to work today, stay home and play with me. And I'm like, oh, man, (laughs) like, wouldn't that be great? You know, and then, and uh, she happens to be a little bit of a strong-willed daughter. So no matter what I tried to answer, it didn't work. It's like, well, uh, daddy has to go to work so we can get money. She was, you can go to the bank and get some money. (laughs) I'm like, like, I don't think they just give it to you. I've asked a few banks for a donation, but they seem to have some strings attached. But um, (laughs) you know, and then I was like, "Well, I'm trying to, you know," and you're trying to trying to reason with a three year old is is tough. It's like, "Daddy has to go to work so we can get food and stuff," and she's like, "You could go to Kroger to get food," (laughs) and I'm like, "This is never going to (laughs) work." I probably should just stay home and throw her on the bed and all this stuff we do, which we called boofing when the kids were little. Boofing was one of my favorites. You have to be careful how you boof them. Don't you can't hit land them. <laughs> Don't land them head first or anything. Uh, God's household. Do You know the basic unit of economics. Oiko is the word for for. Uh, that we get household from, and de meo, build up your house. And, uh, the basic unit of economics is the household in the Bible. And it's when we get it, when the households start break, there's a reason why there's all kind of attacks against marriage and high divorce rates and all kinds of trying to redefine marriage and so forth, because that will also destroy any economy. God's family. Uh, if you haven't read the book, When the Church Was a Family, Recapturing Jesus' Vision for Authentic Christian Community, I would really encourage you to read that book. God's Vineyard, God's Vine, God's Field. When Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, and stuff, he wasn't saying something new. That's a major Old Testament idea. That's why he tells the whole parable in Matthew about a man that planted a vineyard and expected to get fruit from it, and they kept killing. Whenever he sent a servant, they kept killing one stoning another and driving off another. And finally he says, I'll send my son, surely they'll respect my son, and uh, they said, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and the vineyard will be ours. And that's part of the whole Matthew uh, covenant lawsuit from Matthew 19 to Matthew 25 that basically tells uh, Israel, I'm done with you. I'm leave- Behold, your house is left to you desolate, Ichabod and I'm going to uh, give it to a nation producing the fruit of it, and, I, and you're going to be surrounded by the Roman armies, and you're gonna be dist- and, and the temple's going to be torn down, and my glory has departed. I'm done. This whole idea that the temple's going to be rebuilt, and people are going to get saved by works, and, and all this nonsense in, in evangelical Christianity called dispensationalism is... is Beyond just t- twisted bad doctrine, it's heresies. It's outside the faith altogether. God's bride, uh, the bride of Christ, you know, we, we could go on and on. We're getting kind of late, so I'm just going to list a few of them. You know, work on these a little bit. Hose, I love the book of Hosea because it blows your mind. Like God calls him to marry a harlot. As a metaphor of how Israel has treated the Father, right? I used to have a Mexican friend who, he said, Jose is the uh, the Mexican prophet, but he was just kidding. (laughs) Jose, you know, Um, I really did have a Mexican friend who used to say that. of course, he knew it was, it was bad theology. He was just kidding. Army of, the army of God, Ephesians 6, the soldier, all that. Joshua, the captain of the Lord's host. The army of God is, is you know, it's often said that the church is the only army that shoots its wounded. Uh, the fellowship or the community of the redeemed. I wish I had time to talk about redemption. Redemption actually refers to the whole thing of slave auctions. Uh, and it actually has to do with the fact that God is buying ours our out of slavery. We're actually in chains, about to be sold into to the devil and the sin and the captivity, and, and Christ buys us instead. I wish I had time to develop that theme. Redemption is a much bigger word than most Christians think it is. And if you can think in terms of chattel slavery and the evils thereof what, uh, and apply that, that that's who, where we were spiritually before Christ purchased us. That's redemption. I already talked about the word church. The uh, body of Christ is another great metaphor. I, one of the things I do like about this church is how many people do so many different things. Uh, don't get yourself into a place where you don't have a few jobs in the church, where you just come on Sundays or something, and you're not doing anything important. See Stephen and uh, Daniel Williams and, you know, John Gray and Anvesh and Deanna, where th- th- they'll put you to work. <laughs> you know, you should have several jobs in the church. It's part of belonging. That's how you belong. You know, in fact, I'll end with this story. There's more of them. I've told this story, I hope, a million times. But many times when young Christians struggle with, I don't feel like I fit in. And I don't have that many friends in the church. When I came to Christ, I'd been a hippie for about seven years. I think I had had two or three days in the seven years where I wasn't that high. And uh, I know I've been a drug addict and a you know dealer and all that for a long time. Not, fortunately, not too much hard stuff uh, compared to some. I, I stayed away from cocaine and heroin because I was a little scared of them. But I did a lot of speed, acid. I smoked 30, 40 joints every day. You know, it was a, I was completely lost. And so there were times when I'm reading my Bible three hours a day and I'm going to fellowship, but... You know, we all stumble as we're trying to grow. And there were times I was like, who am I kidding? I'll never be one of these Christians. I just, you know, they're all, they all got something God showed them every day. (laughs) They're all excited about the Lord, and I'm like trying to quit sinning. (laughs) And uh, ever been there? And uh, so I I went to the head pastor of the church, uh, a guy who led Catherine to the Lord. Some of you know him. Um, He used to be Eric Myers and my pastor a long time ago. And uh, I said, you know, the truth is, I, I just, I know the Bible says that if you, you know, the ear says I'm not an eye, we're still part of the body. I know that's theoretically true, but I just don't feel like I fit in or belong very well. And he said, you know what you should do? Forget about it. He goes, just start to meet practical needs in the church. Look for needs and serve. And serve every way, shape, and how you could. Now, he knew I was pretty zealous, so I would go crazy with this word. And he said, then reevaluate in two years whether you belong. So I hung up the posters for the events. I mowed the church lawn, two of the three elders' lawns. I babysitted two of the three elders' kids, several other uh, Couples in the church. I babysitted their kids. In fact, I was laid for babysitting for, for Roger and Ealy, Roger and Sue Ely ones. And as I'm going down Church Street, I was speeding, and the cop saw me and started following me. So I just kept speeding until I got in their driveway. So the cop pulled right in the driveway behind me, and I said, "As soon as I get this ticket, I'll be right in." <laughs> but I still, but I still babysitted. <laughs> so. Uh, you know, uh, honestly, like I, I took out the trash. Uh, that's, I've never had a church, I've never been into a, a church that my first job in the church wasn't taking out the trash. When Grace Christian Fellowship started, I thought John and Victor were a little too young to go down to the building to get the trash after dark. So I'd go down every Wednesday night and empty all the waste baskets in the church and take the, tr- the trash out to the corner. It was my first job in Grace Christian Fellowship, emptying the trash. Now you're going to have to push Sam out of the way if you want to get that job, but uh, <laughs> but uh, although I did bring the cans in this week um, from the street, you know there are jobs. There's kids to watch, diapers to change. You know, you, there's things you can do. And if you do, you'll belong. It's as simple as that. So, you know what? If you study gifts, uh, I have a a series on gifts, and it's called Employing Your Gifts. Because you know what? People who don't feel like they belong, it's because your gifts are underemployed. Sometimes our gifts are unemployed. And uh, that will never work that'll never make you part of the family part of the team uh you know there's all kind of practical needs you can you know uh, lots of people love to be taken out to dinner and and especially when you buy for them (laughs) and uh, you know there's lots of things you can do so let's uh let's just end with that so we're looking we're this is the first week on emphasis three which is So we looked at word pictures of the church. We'll look at a different aspect of the church next week.